0: Hey everybody, George Crabbe here, and uh, I'm excited that we're jumping into Romans chapter 9. So we're entering a new section in the book of Romans. Um, To review, we know that Romans chapters 1 through 8 is basically the gospel. It's the gospel of His grace, of God's grace, and how to live by the Spirit. And like Wayne Taylor's books, uh, his title, The Civil War Within, you see one through seven showing that, that it shows us that all of us are sinners and that through grace, through believing in him and having faith like Abraham, that we become a friend of God. We become believers and followers of Jesus and that we still have a struggle in chapter seven, the civil war within us, right? And uh... And then in chapter 8, we see that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's how it also shows us how to live by the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. So chapters 9 through 11, we see the illustration of His grace. It's actually what God's grace looks like. There's a great painting, and it has to do with the nation of Israel. And then Romans chapters 12 through 16 is practical living. It it shows you how to live the life of grace, how to live in in Christ's love and be the new man or the new woman uh, living in the body of Christ and growing. So this is really exciting. You know, the book of Romans, uh, there was a survey done uh, of a lot of pastors and they said if you can only keep one book of the bible which one would it be and they i think it was like 90 percent of them said the book of romans all right so in our further review um, uh, we see that in chapters one through eight the first three chapters were how bad we all are you know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and then chapters four through seven we're saved through faith by grace and in chapter 7 we see that we still struggle with sin and then chapter 8 was that magnanimous moment that you see that you are in Christ Jesus and there is no condemnation, no punishment for you and the Holy Spirit will help you live a life drawing closer and closer to God and becoming more Christ-like. And that's all through the God's spirit as he helps you overcome sin and a great read on that is I'm holding in my hands is Greg Laurie's new believers Bible and uh, uh, here at the beginning of chapter 9 that's actually, actually the end of chapter 8 he sums up he sums up what we've learned in the last part of that section sections chapters 1 through 8 in Romans so Greg wrote, God's Spirit will help you overcome sin. And this is page 184 uh, in his book, or in his Bible, the New Believer's Bible. This is the New Living Translation, His, his Bible is. But his side note here says, this powerful passage contains important truths letting the Holy Spirit lead us. The Apostle Paul makes four key points here. Number one, We are controlled by a new nature. Our old sinful nature will still try to get a hand on the steering wheel. But now our new nature is in the driver's seat and our old nature has become like an annoying backseat driver. We can either give in to our old nature's nagging and bad directions or we can ignore it. And let the Holy Spirit direct our paths. The second point is even though we will face physical death, we will not face spiritual death. For believers, physical death is simply a transition to eternal life in heaven. We have been spared from spiritual death, which leads to everlasting torment in hell. See Revelation chapters. Chapter 21, verse 8. This important fact should reassure us when the devil tries to throw doubts our way. Point number three. The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit who who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead now lives in us. If that is indeed true, and God's word says it is, just think of the supernatural power we now have to resist sin. Wow. And then, point four, we do not have to give in to our sinful nature and urges. Paul wasn't talking about New Year's resolutions here. He was, if we try to to live a moral, upright, godly life in our own strength, we will fail. And fail miserably, but if we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, we will be overcomers. Great stuff by Greg Laurie, right there. Good stuff. So now that we're jumping into the new section of Romans, remember there's three sections: uh, chapters one through eight, and then uh, nine through eleven, and then twelve through sixteen, which is the rest of it. So this section, this middle section of Romans we see in chapter 9 it's Paul's talking about Israel's past suddenly there's this great shift in this book and he's starting to talk he starts talking about Israel and the Jewish people and many people in the past including Martin Luther and, and many others they loved the book of Romans and they were blown away by the gospel in it and and suddenly they got to chapters 9 10 especially 11 and they're like what is this God They thought it should be like thrown out and and those pages ripped out but back then you know martin luther's time around 1517 that's when the great reformation was there was no israel at that time it was a barren land of of uh, bedouin shepherds and and there was nothing hardly there it was just a city of ruins basically and and lots of desert But today we're seeing, uh, we have no excuse. We see Israel rebirth as a nation. We see it flourishing. We see God blessing them already. Kind of like the the father was blessing that son in the prodigal son story. Even before he came home, he was running out to him and he was getting gifts to him. And he was drawing him closer and holding his son who was coming back to him. Well, there's a great parallel there. And that's what we see. So chapter 9 is Israel's past. Chapter 10 is Israel's present state. And then chapter 11 is Israel's future, where they're fully saved, fully restored. It's like life from the dead, like that prodigal son who came home to the father. All right, so now that we've covered that overview and, um, and some review, let's uh, let's jump in. Let's jump in. So Romans chapter 9, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation out of Out of Greg Lurie's New Believer's Bible. Chapter 9. With Christ as my witness. I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow. And unending grief for my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed. Cut off. From Christ if that would save them. They are the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors and Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So here we see Paul willing to go to the outer darkness, away from the presence of Christ forever, to be cursed the outer darkness, to me, it, it, imagine a campfire and the fire is is Christ and his light is there and, and the warmth and, and you could see clearly and all those things. There's food to eat there, right? But the further you go away, the darker and darker and darker it gets until you're in the outer darkness and you can't even find your way back to the light. And that's a good picture of what Paul's describing here. He's willing to be cursed like that with the cursed people away from God forever and ever if his people would be saved he was willing to to substitute himself that's a powerful thing the only other person who was willing to do that was was Moses he was willing that he himself would be uh, cursed that his people would be saved so here we see Paul how his heart and how much he loves his people his brethren and his sisters the the children of Israel here all right in verse six well then has God thought Failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scripture says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. And through Abraham... And though, excuse me, Abraham had other children too. So this means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When, when he married Rebecca, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. And this message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, quote, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that that God has, has been unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, quote, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. Let's stop right there. Now we go back to abraham and isaac and i that was in uh verses let's see it's in eight verses seven and eight where it says that isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted though abraham had other children too so we saw two children with with isaac we saw ishmael who was born before isaac through his his uh um, concubine uh, and and this is not his son of the promise that God promised through uh, Sarah. So Ishmael is where in modern times, and it goes back to the 600s uh, AD, where Islam was, was birthed. And Islam claims the descendant, the line through Ishmael, which is very interesting to me because Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. And Isaac is a picture of living in the spirit. Isaac and Abraham are also a picture of the father and the son going up Mount Moriah. Remember that? God said to take your only son, Isaac, and go sacrifice him on a hill, which I shall tell you. And then they saddle a donkey. They go, and then Abraham tells his two servants, we will be back to you in three days. Remember, Jesus said three days. And then here we see the father and the son moving up this mountain, Mount Moriah which later becomes the very mountain in Jerusalem where Jesus goes up a mountain. And remember, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was carrying the wood on his back. And he looks to his father and he says, Father, I I don't see the, the lamb for the burnt offering. And Abraham said to him, My son, God will provide himself the lamb. You see the picture here? And then later on top of the mountain, Abraham lays his son Isaac on top of the wood, bound him. Remember, Jesus was laid on the wood cross. And then suddenly the angel stops him and he says, look over there. You know, God's not going to have you kill your son. Don't kill him. And then there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns on that top of that mountain. And the ram became the substitution. There was a, a, a sheep provided, just like Jesus was provided for us as a substitution, right? So what we see through through Isaac and, and Abraham is we see that God had a plan through them. And interestingly, the name Isaac or in Hebrew Yitzhak, you remember prime minister of Israel Yitzhak Rabin? Well Yitzhak, Isaac means laughter. It means God laughs, right? Isn't that interesting? God gets the last laugh, God God wins. We try our little things as humans and, and threaten God's people. Some people threaten God's people or they threaten us or the world laughs at God, but God laughs. All right, so let's, uh, let's keep moving on here in verse 16. So it, so it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they can so they refuse to listen. Verse 19. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? Well, verse 20 says, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Showing, or should the, should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, Does he have a right to to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another jar to, to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls. Who are designated for destruction? He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Verse 23. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in prophecy of Hosea, quote, those who were not my people i will now call my people and i will love those whom i did not love before and quote then at the place where they they were told you are not my people there they will be called children of the living god isn't that great us gentiles if i'm if you're not jewish Speaking to us Gentiles, we have been shown great mercy by God and allowed to become become children of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus was talking about the good shepherd and his flock. And then he said, and other sheep which I have, which are not of this fold, them too I must bring in. He was talking about the Gentiles. That's recorded in John chapter 10. So moving along here in Romans chapter 9 again, verse 27, now he says, And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. Verse 28, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. Wow. You know, it's interesting in that first verse there, the to- verse 27 at the end of it, it says, only a remnant, speaking of Israel, will be saved. It's very interesting to me that um, when Jesus fed When he fed the Jewish people in the Jewish land the fishes and loaves, how many baskets were remaining? There were 12 baskets remaining with Jesus and the disciples. Later, when Jesus fed the 7,000 in the, the east shore of the Sea of Galilee, this was the Gentile area, this was a Greek Gentile area. And how many baskets were remaining? There were seven baskets remaining. And the disciples said that to Jesus because he asked him. So those are remnants. There's 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. There's seven baskets, the seven churches, right? Revelation shows us that there's seven churches. There was the seven lampstands representing the seven churches, which were always in the tabernacle and the temple. The holy place had the menorah, the the seven lampstand that was kept lit, kept on fire by the oil, by the high priest pouring the olive oil into that lampstand, which kept the flames, those seven flames burning bright. And what was over the chest, over the heart of the high priest? And remember, the high priest was always a picture of Jesus that's recorded in Hebrews that our great high priest is Jesus. So what? What? what's over his heart? Well, the ephod was like this apron that he wore, and it had this embroidered square section right over his chest, over his heart, and it was the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that great? So the high priest, the picture of Jesus, keeps the oil in the church. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. He keeps pouring the Holy Spirit into the church, And as the church's flame shines brighter, they light up, they're hot for God, and they they see that that they light up the area because of the brightness from the pouring of the Spirit. The 12 stones over his heart, over Jesus' heart, the 12 tribes of Israel shine brighter. That's good stuff right there, right? So God has pictures of where he's found in all of the scriptures. I just love that. Love God. All right, so let's continue in chapter 9, the last part here, starting in verse 30. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried hard to get it right with God by keeping the law never succeeded Verse 32, why not? Because they were trying to get, the, get right with God by keeping the law. Instead of by trusting in him, they stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in, in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And that's the end of chapter 9 in the book of Romans. So I want to go over that one time here because when he quotes here, he's He's quoting Old Testament scripture. And what he's saying is, we'll go over it again, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that, that makes the people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will, speaking of that rock will never be disgraced wow you know there's an old jewish story that describes this very very well here and what it's describing when jesus said that that the stone which is the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone speaking of himself jesus said that. What that's speaking about, back then, they all knew the story of the first temple, the building of the first temple. So when Jesus said that, they all knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, the first temple built by Solomon, designed by Solomon, and and all of the pieces for it were gathered by his father, David. But what Solomon did when he had that opportunity to build the temple, and he had everything was in place, all the goods were ready, He had a rock quarry some distance away from the temple mount because no chisel or hammer was to be used or work to be done on that holy place, that holy site where the first temple was built. And so the rock quarry was some ways away. Well, there was workers ready on the temple mount to just place the stones, put them in place. And they were cut so perfectly. This is amazing that there was no gaps. It was perfect. But anyway, the, so the the first stone was sent by the by the rock quarry, and they sent it up to the Temple Mount, and the workers were up there, the the constructors were up there, ready, and and uh, they were waiting, and and the stone was there, it showed up, but it didn't, they didn't recognize it, and this was the first stone, brought up the first time, and they didn't even recognize this this large stone, so they they just chucked it over, rolled it over the hill down the cliff, and it got stuck in the thicket in the, the bushes that grew around it well then the other stones showed up that were actually cut the first one wasn't cut by human hands that's why they didn't recognize it the other ones were and they saw that there was chisel mark you know it was, uh, these square stones that came and they so they put it together they put the temple together as planned and when they were finally just about finished they sent word back to the rock quarry the rock the the masons the you know the the chiselers and all that And they said, well, where's the the chief cornerstone? We're missing that. And they sent word back saying to them, we sent that to you a long time ago. It should be there. And they realized that they had rejected the chief cornerstone. And it was caught in the thicket on that very hill of Moriah, which later was called Jerusalem. And they went down and they got it. And they put it where it belonged, the crowning stone, the cornerstone, the chief capstone. And they put it in its place and the temple was complete. That is what it is speaking about in the scripture. It's speaking of the chief cornerstone, Jesus. Yeah, Just amazing stuff. I love how God weaves all of this together in the scriptures. Isn't that cool? All right, you guys. Well, this concludes Romans chapter 9. And I hope you were blessed by it. And I'm looking forward to Romans chapter 10 and 11. This is so exciting. God bless you.